Section 6 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Venice, an early impression. There will be much to say about that golden chain of historic cities which stretches from Milan to Venice, in which the very names, Brescia, Verona, Mantua, Padua, are an ornament to one's phrase. But I should have to draw upon recollections now three years old, and to make my short story a long one. Of Verona and Venice only have I recent impressions, and even to these must I do hasty justice. I came into Venice, just as I had done before, toward the end of a summer's day, when the shadows begin to lengthen and the light to glow, and found that the attendant sensations bore repetition remarkably well. There was the same last intolerable delay at Mestre, just before your first glimpse of the lagoon confirms the already distinct sea smell, which has added speed to the recursive flight of your imagination. Then the liquid level, edged far off by its band of undiscriminated domes and spires, soon distinguished and proclaimed, however, as excited and contentious heads multiplied the windows of the train, then your long rumble on the immense white railway bridge, which in spite of the invidious contrast drawn, and very properly, by Mr. Ruskin between the old and the new approach, does truly in a manner shine across the green lap of the lagoon like a mighty causeway of marble. Then the plunge into the station, which would be exactly similar to every other plunge, save for one little fact, that the keynote of the great medley of voices borne back from the exit is not cab, sir, but barca, signore. I do not mean, however, to follow the traveller through every phase of his initiation at the risk of stamping poor Venice beyond repair as the supreme bugbear of literature. That for my own part I hold that to a fine healthy romantic appetite the subject can't be too diffusely treated. Meeting in the piazza on the evening of my arrival a young American painter who told me that he'd been spending the summer just where I found him, I could have assaulted him for very envy. He was painting, forsooth, the interior of St. Mark's. To be a young American painter, unperplexed by the mocking elusive soul of things, and satisfied with their wholesome, light-bathed surface and shape, keen of eye, fond of colour, of sea and sky, and anything that may chance between them, of old lace and old brocade and old furniture, even when made to order, of time-mellowed harmonies on nameless canvases, and happy contours in cheap old engravings. To spend one's mornings in still, productive analysis of the clustered shadows of the basilica, one's afternoons anywhere in church or campo on canal or lagoon, and one's evenings in starlight gossip at Florian's, feeling the sea breeze throb languidly between the two great pillars of the piazzetta and over the low black domes of the church. This, I consider, 
is to be as happy as is consistent with the preservation of reason. The mere use of one's eyes in Venice is happiness enough, and generous observers find it hard to keep account of their profits in this line. Everything the attention touches holds it, keeps playing with it, thanks to some inscrutable flattery of the atmosphere. Your brown-skinned, white-shirted gondolier, twisting himself in the light, seems to you as you light contemplation beneath your awning, a perpetual symbol of Venetian effect. The light here is in fact a mighty magician, and with all respect to Titian, Veronese and Tintoret, the greatest artist of them all. You should see in places the material with which it deals, slimy brick, marble, battered and befouled, rags, dirt, decay. Sea and sky seem to meet halfway, to blend their tones into a soft iridescence, a lustrous compound of wave and cloud and a hundred nameless local reflections, and then to fling the clear tissue against every object of vision. You may see these elements at work everywhere, but to see them in their intensity, you should choose the finest day in the month and have yourself rowed far across the lagoon to Torcello. Without making this excursion, you can hardly pretend to know Venice or to sympathise with that longing for pure radiance which animated her great colourists. It is a perfect bath of light. And I couldn't get rid of a fancy that we were cleaving the upper atmosphere on some hurrying cloud skiff. At Torcello, there is nothing but the light to see, nothing at least but a sort of blooming sandbar intersected by a single narrow creek which does duty as a canal, and occupied by a meagre cluster of huts, the dwellings apparently of market gardeners and fishermen and by a ruinous church of the 11th century. It is impossible to imagine a more penetrating case of unheeded collapse. Torcello was the mother city of Venice, and she lies there now, a mere mouldering vestige, like a group of weather-bleached parental bones left impiously unburied. I stopped my gondola at the mouth of the shallow inlet and walked along the grass beside the hedge, to the low-browed, crumbling cathedral. The charm of certain vacant, grassy spaces in Italy, overfrowned by masses of brickwork that are honeycombed by the suns of centuries, is something that I hereby renounce once for all the attempt to express. But you may be sure that whenever I mention such a spot, enchantment lurks in it. A delicious stillness covered the little campo at Torcello. I remember none so subtly audible save that of the Roman Campagna. There was no life but the visible tremor of the brilliant air and the cries of half a dozen young children who dogged our steps and clamoured for coppers. These children, by the way, were the handsomest little brats in the world and each was furnished with a pair of eyes that could only have signified the protest of nature against the meanness of fortune. 
they were very nearly as naked as savages and the little bellies protruded like those of infant cannibals in the illustrations of books of travel but as they scampered and sprawled in the soft thick grass grinning like suddenly translated cherubs and showing their hungry little teeth they suggested forcibly that the best assurance of happiness in this world is to be found in the maximum of innocence and the minimum of wealth one small urchin framed if ever a child was to be the joy of an aristocratic mamma was the most expressively beautiful creature i had ever looked upon yet a smile to make Correggio sigh in his grave and yet here he was running wild among the sea-stunted bushes on the lonely margin of a decaying world in prelude to how blank or how dark a destiny verily nature is still at odds with propriety though indeed if they ever really pull together i fear nature will quite lose her distinction an infant citizen of our own republic straight-haired pale-eyed and freckled duly darned and catechized marching into a new england schoolhouse is an object often seen and soon forgotten but i think i shall always remember with infinite tender conjecture as the years roll by this little unlettered eros of the adriatic strand yet all youthful things at torcello were not cheerful for the poor lad who brought us the key of the cathedral was shaking with an ague and his melancholy presence seemed to point the moral of the forsaken nave and choir the church admirably primitive and curious reminded me of the two or three oldest churches of rome st clement and st agnes the interior is rich in grimly mystical mosaics of the twelfth century and the patchwork of precious fragments in the pavement not inferior to that of st mark's but the terribly distinct apostles arranged against their dead gold backgrounds as stiffly as grenadiers presenting arms intensely personal sentinels of a personal deity their stony stare seems to wait forever vainly for some visible revival of primitive orthodoxy and one may well wonder whether it finds much beguilement in idly gazing troops of western heretics passionless even in their heresy i had been curious to see whether in the galleries and temples of venice i should be disposed to transpose my old estimates to burn what i had adored and adore what i had burned it is a sad truth that one can stand in the ducal palace for the first time but once with the deliciously ponderous sense of that particular half hours being an era in one's mental history but i had the satisfaction of finding at least a great comfort in a short stay that none of my early memories were likely to change places and that i could take up my admirations where i had left them i still found carpaccio delightful veronese magnificent titian supremely beautiful and tintoret scarce to be appraised i repaired immediately to the little church of san cassano which contains the smaller of tintoret's two great crucifixions and when i had looked at it a while i drew a long breath 
and felt I could now face any other picture in Venice with proper self-possession. It seemed to me that I had advanced to the uttermost limit of painting, that beyond this another art, inspired poetry, begins, and that Bellini, Veronese, Giorgione and Titian, all joining hands and straining every muscle of their genius, reach forward not so far but they leave a visible space in which Tintoret alone is master. I well remember the exultations to which he lifted me when I first learned to know him, but the glow of that comparatively youthful amazement is dead, and with it, I fear, the confident vivacity of phrase of which, in trying to utter my impressions, I felt less the magniloquence than the impotence. In his power there are many weak spots, mysterious lapses and fitful intermissions. But when the list of his faults is complete, he still remains to me the most interesting of painters. His reputation rests chiefly on a more superficial sort of merit, his energy, his unsurpassed productivity, his being, as Théophile Gautier says, le roi des fougueux. These qualities are immense, but the great source of his impressiveness is that his indefatigable hand never drew a line that was not, as one might say, a moral line. No painter ever had such breadth and such depth, and even Titian, beside him, scarce figures as more than a great decorative artist. Mr. Ruskin, whose eloquence in dealing with the great Venetians sometimes outruns his discretion, is fond of speaking even of Elenese as a painter of deep spiritual intentions. This, it seems to me, is pushing matters too far, and the author of The Rape of Europa is, pictorially speaking, no greater casuist than any other genius of supreme good taste. Titian was assuredly a mighty poet, at Tintoret, well, Tintoret was almost a prophet. Before his greatest works, you were conscious of a sudden evaporation of old doubts and dilemmas, and the eternal problem of the conflict between idealism and realism dies the most natural of deaths. In his genius, the problem is practically solved. The alternatives are so harmoniously interfused that I defy the keenest critic to say where one begins and the other ends. The homeliest prose melts into the most ethereal poetry. The literal and the imaginative fairly confound their identity. This, however, is vague praise. Tintoret's great merit, to my mind, was his unequalled distinctness of vision. When once he had conceived the germ of a scene, it defined itself to his imagination with an intensity and amplitude, an individuality of expression, which makes one's observation of his pictures seem less an operation of the mind than a kind of supplementary experience of life. Veronese and Titian are content with a much looser specification as their treatment of any subject that the author of the crucifixion at San Casano has also treated abundantly proves. There are a few more suggestive contrasts, and that between the absence of a total character at all commensurate with its scattered variety and brilliancy, 
in Veronese's Marriage of Cana at the Louvre, and the poignant, almost startling completeness of Tintoret's illustration of the theme at the Salute Church. To compare his presentation of the Virgin at the Madonna dell'Orto with Titian's at the Academy, or his Annunciation with Titian's close at hand, is to measure the essential difference between observation and imagination. One has certainly not said all that there is to say for Titian when one has called him an observer. Il y mettait du sien. And I use the term to designate roughly the artist whose apprehension infinitely deep and strong when applied to a single figure or to easily balanced groups spends itself vainly on great dramatic combinations or rather leaves them ungaged. It was the whole scene that Tintoret seemed to have beheld in a flash of inspiration intense enough to stamp it ineffaceably on his perception. And it was the whole scene, complete, peculiar, individual, unprecedented, that he committed to canvas with all the vehemence of his talent. Compare his Last Supper at San Giorgio, its long diagonally placed table, its dusky spaciousness, its scattered lamplight and halo light, its startled gesticulating figures, its richly realistic foreground, with the customary, formal, almost mathematical rendering of the subject, in which impressiveness seems to have been sought in illumination rather than comprehension. You get from Tintoret's work the impression that he felt, pictorially, the great, beautiful, terrible spectacle of human life, very much as Shakespeare felt it poetically, with a heart that never ceased to beat a passionate accompaniment to every stroke of his brush. Thanks to this fact, his works are signally grave, and their almost universal and rapidly increasing decay doesn't relieve their gloom. Nothing indeed can well be sadder than the great collection of Tintoret's at San Rocco, incurable blackness is settling fast upon all of them and they frown at you across the sombre splendour of their great chambers like gaunt twilight phantoms of pictures to our children's children tintoret as things are going can hardly be more than a name and such of them as shall miss the tragic beauty already so dimmed and stained of the great bearing of the cross in that temple of his spirit, will live and die without knowing the largest eloquence about. If you wish to add the last touch of solemnity to the place, recall as vividly as possible while you linger at saint Rocco, the painter's singularly interesting portrait of himself at the Louvre. The old man looks out of the canvas from beneath the brow as sad as a sunless twilight, with just such a stoical hopelessness as you might fancy him to wear if he stood at your side gazing at his rotting canvases it isn't whimsical to read it as the face of a man who felt that he had given the world more than the world was likely to repay indeed before every picture of tintoret you may remember this tremendous portrait with profit on one side, the power, the passion, the illusion of his art. On another, the mortal fatigue of his spirit. 
The world's knowledge of him is so small that the portrait throws a doubly precious light on his personality. And when we wonder vainly what manner of man he was and what were his purpose, his faith and his method, we may find forcible assurance there that they were at any rate his life, one of the most intellectually passionate ever led. Verona, which was my last Italian stopping place, is in any conditions a delightfully interesting city, but the kindness of my own memory of it is deepened by a subsequent ten days' experience of Germany. I rose one morning at Verona and went to bed at night at Botzen. The statement needs no comment, and the two places, though not fifty miles apart, and as painfully dissimilar as their names. I had prepared myself for your delectation with a copious tirade on German manners, German scenery, German art and the German stage, on the lights and shadows of Innsbruck, Munich, Nuremberg and Heidelberg. Just as I was about to put pen to paper, I glanced into a little volume on these very topics, lately published by that famous novelist and moralist, Monsieur Ernest Fedot, the fruit of a summer's observation at Homburg. This work produced a reaction. If I chose to follow Mr. Fado's own example when he wishes to qualify his approbation, I might call his treatise by any vile name known to the speech of man. But I content myself with pronouncing it superficial. I then reflect that my own opportunities for seeing and judging were extremely limited, and I suppress my tirade, lest some more enlightened critic should come and hang me with the same rope. Its sum and substance was to have been that superficially, Germany is ugly, that Munich is a nightmare, Heidelberg a disappointment, in spite of its charming castle, and even Nuremberg not a joy forever. But comparisons are odious. And if Munich is ugly, Verona is beautiful enough. You may laugh at my logic, but will probably assent to my meaning. I carried away from Verona a precious mental picture upon which I cast an introspective glance whenever, between Botzen and Strasbourg, the oppression of external circumstances became painful. It was a lovely August afternoon in the Roman arena, a ruin in which repair and restoration have been so watchfully and plausibly practised that it seems all of one harmonious antiquity. The vast stony oval rose high against the sky in a single clear continuous line, broken here and there only by strolling and reclining lounges. The massive tears inclined in solid monotony to the central circle in which the small open-air theatre was in active operation. A small quarter of the great slope of masonry facing the stage was roped off into an auditorium in which the narrow level space between the footlights and the lowest step figured as the pit. Footlights are a figure of speech, for the performance was going on in the broad glow of the afternoon with the delightful and apparently by no means misplaced confidence in the goodwill of the spectators. 
What the peace was that was deemed so superbly able to shift for itself, I know not. Very possibly the same drama that I remember seeing advertised during my former visit to Verona. Nothing less than La Tremenda Justizia di Dio. If titles are worth anything, this product of the melodramatist's art might surely stand upon its own legs. Along the tiers above the little group of regular spectators was gathered a free list of unauthorised observers, who, although beyond earshot, must have been enabled by the generous breadth of Italian gesture to follow the tangled thread of the piece. It was all deliciously Italian. The mixture of old life and new, the mountebanks booth, it was hardly more, grafted on the antique circus, the dominant presence of a mighty architecture, the loungers and idlers beneath the kindly sky and upon the sun-warmed stones. I never felt more keenly the difference between the background to life in very old and very new civilizations. There are other things in Verona to make it a liberal education to be born there, though that it is one for the contemporary Veronese, I don't pretend to say. The tombs of the Scaligers, with their soaring pinnacles, their high-poised canopies, their exquisite refinement and concentration of the Gothic idea, I can't profess, even after much worshipful gazing, to have fully comprehended and enjoyed. They seem to me full of deep architectural meanings, such as must drop gently into the mind one by one, after infinite tranquil contemplation. But even to the hurried and preoccupied traveller, the solemn little chapel-yard and the city's heart in which they stand, girdled by their great swaying curtain of linked and twisted iron, is one of the most impressive spots in Italy. Nowhere else is such a wealth of artistic achievement crowded into so narrow a space. Nowhere else are the daily comings and goings of men blessed by the presence of manlier art. Verona is rich, furthermore, in beautiful churches, several with beautiful names, San Fermo, Santa Anastasia, San Zenone. This last is a structure of high antiquity and of the most impressive loveliness. The nave terminates in a double choir, that is, a sub-choir or crypt, into which you descend and where you wander among primitive columns whose variously grotesque capitals rise hardly higher than your head, and an upper choral plain reached by broad stairways of the bravest effect. And I shall never forget the impression of majestic chastity that I received from the great nave of the church on my former visit. I then decided to my satisfaction that every church is, from the devotional point of view, a solecism that has not something of a similar absolute felicity of proportion. For strictly formal beauty seems best to express our conception of spiritual beauty. The nobly serious character of San Zanone is deepened by its single picture, a masterpiece of the most serious of painters, the severe and exquisite Mantegna. 1872. End of section 6.